Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Bug Eye's Rock Pop Rambles. I'm your host Angela from the band Bug Eye and joining me this week is... Gracie Tookies. It's Gracie Tookies. I feel like we haven't done a show together in, in ages. Oh, we haven't, have we? What was the last one that we did? Oh, I, can't, I can't remember. I can't remember either. I honestly That's can't bad, remember. Well, I know that you, you did one with Kerry recently that was quite good. I quite liked that. We were talking about Woodstock. Yes. Yeah, I enjoyed that one. And then good. that Me- Mexican festival, which... Um, I can't remember the name of it now, and I bet you can't either. Neither could I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's I good that, that we remember good. these things. That, uh, there was lots I learned about Woodstock there because I actually didn't know yeah. that much about it at all. No, no, neither did I. I didn't realise that it was um, such a kind of winging it type of thing. I liked the story about the person being electrocuted and flying across the stage. <laughs> yeah, and and Jimi Hendrix playing at like nine a.m. on the Monday. Yeah, it's to, like it's a cool. handful. Well. More than a handful of people, but not, you know, yeah. most people having gone home. Yeah, it was good. I enjoyed through, that through one. That. Yeah, yeah, that was really good. Really good. Um, yeah, I, I like stuff like that where you think you know a story, but you don't. And I think we're full of that today, actually. I think we are. I think we Now, are. we were going to do a theme, and I think we were a little bit kind of disorganised with this, because we were going to do like a themed episode that was about sexy songs. Yes. Um, for, for, I was about to say for Halloween, but that's not right. <laughs> for no. Valentine's Day. Um, but that was kind, that's kind of gone. Kind of Sca- boat sexy, on that. scary songs. <laughs> sexy, scary songs. <laughs> A niche audience, but they are out there. <laughs> That's a task. We need to find sexy, <laughs> scary songs. Right, okay. Um, no, so we've kind of... I think we're doing like a, an episode we haven't done in a while where we're actually just focusing on... Um, well, I'm, I'm going to be talking about Barry White, actually, Ooh. which I surprised myself with, with that one. But I kind of went, went down a rabbit hole with it. Well, I was literally going to talk about one song that I actually just thought he's quite an interesting character in himself and I quite like his story um and it's full of lots of things I didn't know so I'm just going to talk about Barry White but and who are you talking about Grace so I'm going to talk about a singer called Bessie Smith I don't know if you know who that is yeah 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 good good very good yeah who doesn't know Bessie Smith have you seen the film uh I, I started watching it earlier I got about half an hour in and then life got in the way but uh, yes, yeah, yeah. I'm going to watch the rest of it at some point because it was great. Yeah, it's really, it's really good. It's really good. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and we've got new music. I think we're playing a little bit more new music than we normally would. That sounds like we're playing loads. We're not. We're playing three rather than two. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've brought along a couple that um, I've discovered in the most recent week. I think. Yeah. Um, so Naz and Ella, who. Um, I've just been doing this whole thing of going through our followers on Twitter and decided it'd be really good if all the bands are all sort of following each other, if we actually all start following each other on all of the different platforms. So I kind of did a bit of a shout out yeah. and, and they responded and stuff like that. They listened to their stuff and it's like, that's why it's actually good to go through your lists because you miss 
some of the people that follow you and there's loads of great untapped music there so yeah I was really glad that um that I did that so I'm gonna play a track by them and then also the Anderson tapes nice um which was something that was emailed through to rockpoprambles at gmail so I'm gonna play that as well because it's really really good um and who have you got for us this week Gracie uh I have a band that I found through Loud Women uh called Anorak Patch and I'm gonna be playing their latest single cool Right, so should we get stuck in? Let's go for it. Are you gonna, do, do you want to start or? Yeah. Do you want, do you want me to start, start with my my uh, story? Your your story, okay, Grace, from where you were born <laughs> to present. Right then. So um, obviously, I'm going to talk about Bessie Smith. I was going to mention the film, but you've already uh, you've already mentioned that Sold one, that so one. it's not big news yeah. anymore. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So Bessie Smith. Uh, she was, did you know that she was known as the Empress of Blues? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, pretty cool title, isn't it? That's pretty impressive. Was that, was that something she was given while she was alive? Or is that something that's been, she's now known as that? I think it was something that was, started to appear in the media at the time. I think Columbia Records, who she signed to, who I'll talk about later, I think they tried to, Sella is like the mother of blues, but for some reason the Empress of Blues started to circulate instead. I'm not really sure where it came from specifically, but yeah, it was a media thing. So, okay. So do you know much about her life at all? I know little bits. I know the, uh, I mean, I could reel it off, but maybe you should just um, okay. <laughs> tell, tell me. I know, I know about her love life. I know about her addictions yeah i'm not actually going to talk that much violence, about that but um and but but, but yeah. yeah well yeah okay. I'll, I'll let you tell it rather than me just going oh and this and that so the, so, the, yeah. the well the reason that i want to talk about her is because when we decided we were going to do like loosely sort of valentine's day themed kind of song um i googled like the the top songs about sex and this <laughs> one of her tracks which is, I don't know if you know it, but it's called I Need a Little Sugar in My Bowl. Yeah. Um, that came <laughs> off as like one of the one of the sexiest songs of all time. Really? And it was in like loads of articles on like um, the, the, like the sexiest songs or the best songs with double entendre and stuff like that. So I listened to it and I was like, because um, I hadn't, I'm, I'm quite ashamed to say this, but I hadn't really heard of Bessie Smith until I started researching this. Um, so I was like, oh, well, who's this fabulous, you know, woman singing this sort of music in the, the, the 30s? And then... Is, isn't it um, Queen... Is it Queen Latifah who plays her in... Yeah, it is, yeah. The film, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I... Uh, that's that's what sort of what got me onto Bessie Smith, really. So I started listening to that song and reading a little bit about her life. And she's just, yeah, she's just really interesting. She reminds me, her story reminds me a little bit of, do you remember when I did uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp? Yeah. It kind yeah, of reminded yeah. me a bit that of that. That was a good episode. So I thought it'd be a nice one to do, um, as I'd already covered um, Rosetta Tharp. So, yeah, so Bessie Smith, she was born in, um, is it Chattanooga? Chattanooga? Oh, I don't, you're asking me in, how to pronounce stuff. Like, so I, in, I think it's Chattanooga, in Tennessee, in around 1894. Although they don't really know exactly when she was born, because the, in those days, local white governments didn't really care too much about the birth details of black children. So, like, 
we're not sure of the specific date. Um, so her both parents um, died when she was a child. So I think by by the age of nine she was orphaned. So she was raised by her older sister Viola. Okay. Um, and in Chattanooga there was a real vibrant musical culture at the time. So they had the travelling vaudeville shows coming through the city, and that was the most popular entertainment of the day. Um, and there was lots of folk songs that were sung at work or on the streets. So like her aunt and her sister who raised her were both um, laundresses and they would sing songs to get them through the working day. Like, so it was these sort of types of s- songs that were sung by ordinary everyday folk that obviously yeah. fed into the development of blues as mm-hmm. um, a musical genre. So from a child, really, without anything close to like a formal musical education or training she was just surrounded by music in her everyday life it was part of well it was just part of her growing up really um and then around the age of 11 ish she started busking on the streets Mm -hmm. so that's that's a really really young age isn't it to i guess for your first essentially her first performance um, I mean, that was similar to um, Ella Fitzgerald, actually, because when Ella Fitzgerald's mother died, um, like her aunts raised her, and obviously she was quite emotionally distressed at that point, was sent off to like a naughty girls' school and ran away, and, and basically was busking yeah. on the streets from like a really. So I think maybe, you know, I wouldn't say it was a common thing, but I think it's just, you know, it's how people made ends meet, wasn't it, really? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that was how she brought money in. So her sister was, uh, uh, not, yeah, some of her sisters, I think, and the one that raised her was a laundress, but she, she, um, she busked to earn money, her and her brother. So. Yeah, so she, she her brother played guitar and she um, sang and danced on the streets. But even like at this early age, she had to learn to perform because there was a lot of competition for attention because there were so many performers in the streets. So like you say, it probably was quite a common thing um, at that time. So this is where she first started to develop her sort of stage persona, I guess, and develop into an actual performer. Um so, yeah, she nurtured her talent on the streets, really, f- for a number of years. And it wasn't until she was 18. So she started busking at 11. So this was a good, like, seven years that she was doing it for before she actually auditioned in an amateur vaudeville competition. And that's when she first got into performing. So she was hired into a show starring Ma Rainey. Do you know that name? No, I don't, I don't know that So name. she was... Um, she was like another early African-American blues singer. She was one of the first generation of blues singers to record. Like she probably deserves an episode in her own right, actually. I might cover her next time. But yeah, so she starts performing with Ma Rainey, um, but she was hired into this show as a, as a dancer and not a singer. So at this point, she kind of still performing, but yeah, yeah. hadn't fully developed into the singer that she became. So, yeah, she performs as a dancer in the show for years. Um, and then the blues starts to spread because obviously originally it belonged to the South because it wasn't considered tasteful for higher class people in the North. But then things started to change a little bit and it, and it spread throughout America. And then eventually Bessie sort of follows this and moves to Philadelphia. Um, and this is where her career like really takes off. So people just went crazy for her, basically. She was like a star. Her performances were really captivating and engaging. She sang about 
all the classic blues themes like struggle, love, heartbreak. Um, sang a lot of standards because obviously back in those days, it's about putting your own stamp on a record more than anything yeah. really. Um, she also did write her own songs, which I thought was pretty amazing for an artist back then, let alone a black woman. Because um, the whole singer-songwriter thing wasn't really a thing back then, was it? No, it was. it was more like you had a talent to sing or play something and then you had producers who were writers who were you kind of, you know, linked to production house or record company. Exactly. Really. So, yeah, she, which I thought she was obviously super talented in so many yeah. ways. Um, and her own songs were successful as well as, her, as you know, the ones that she recorded. Um, so, yeah, her career really starts taking off. She gets married. She's attracting lots of admirers. She had lots of, I think both her and her husband had lots of love affairs both with she had affairs with both men and women and apparently she was really openly bisexual to her friends um and even her husband knew that she was bisexual and he kind of I don't know if he accepted it but he sort of let her get on with it um but yeah so they both slept with a lot of other people um openly but and also I've read that she because you mentioned her addiction I read that she kind of loved to drink yeah, she was quite, uh, yeah, quite, quite an alcoholic. Yeah, so she and she'd get into quite a lot of physical fights apparently when she yeah. had a drink. Yeah, yeah, I've yeah. Read... She, she was quite a, a violent drunk, really. And it was mainly with lovers, I think, wasn't it? Because I read somewhere about mm-hmm. she'd like yeah. hit people over the head with chairs and stuff like yeah. that. Like she was pretty nuts. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> and she even got—I don't know if you knew this—but she even got stabbed at a show once. No, I didn't know that. Bloody hell. Yeah, so apparently one of the audience members was getting a bit, well, a bit handsy with one of the uh, <laughs> with one of the chorus girls and she was like, oh, I'm not having that. So she goes over to him and starts beating him up. Bloody hell. Well, in the middle of know, a show, very, very hot. still, Jesus. <laughs> um, but, but then, yeah, so he stabbed her. I mean, she was fine. God. But yeah, I mean, she clearly wouldn't take any shit from anyone. Um, so yeah that was like the height of her career really so I think we're we're in like the 1910s now so blues are spread across America recorded music's more accessible it's less of like a luxury item so prices start to drop records are more affordable for working class people like black and white Um, Mm -hmm. and then there's this huge demand for female blues singers which I assume would be when when did no Rosetta Thart wasn't around at this time was she she was a bit later no she's a little bit later um So, yeah, in 1923, so this is a bit later on, this is like 10, 13 years later, she signs to Columbia Records, um, who it turns out underpaid her royalties, which seems to be a running theme. With It's it's, it's almost like just record that segment and press play on any story that we do of anyone like between... Like 1900s to, I, I mean, well, it's ridiculous, to isn't it? Still now, <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. So, yeah, so it turns out they underpaid her royalties. Um, they started a thing called Race Records, it's called Race Records yeah. Series. Have you heard of that? No, so it was basically music targeted at black audiences because there was a demand for this type of music, um, amongst black audiences. So, Columbia started Race Records. Um, she was one of the first, if not the first, actually, artist to be released under that. Um, and yeah. that's when she was put to the world as the Queen of the Blues. Um, but then, obviously, like I said earlier, the media came up Empress of the Blues title, and that, that's the one that stuck. 
So a first record, Downhearted Blues, which was written by two women, which I thought was really cool. Again, that's that's interesting because you don't really hear so much of that, do you? No, not two women as well. Do you know what I mean? Like I sort of could yeah. possibly imagine sort of co-written by a woman and a man. But yeah, it, which I thought that was fascinating. So it was, not, it was a hit. It sold 780,000 copies, which was like unheard of at the time. Um, and apparently she helped Columbia Records with the success of that out of a, out of a bit of a slump. So it's kind of even more oh, of yeah. a kick in the, <laughs> kick yeah. in the bollocks that they didn't give her the royalties that she was. Well, it's, it's actually really interesting how um, the importance of women uh, in building these record labels seems to kind of be missed. There was someone who... I'd, Ella Mae Morse. Yeah. Um, I didn't. I spoke about her a few episodes ago. Who I had never heard of her until um, I can't even remember what the theme of that show was. But for some reason, I just um, stumbled across her, and I knew one of her songs, but I didn't mean no. It was it was the one where it was the the theme about songs with the colour blue, like for Blue January, yeah. and it was the House of Blue Lights, which I'd heard that song, but I didn't know really anything about the artist. And it was through her and her music um, that built Capitol Records that then went on to just, like, be this super force. But if it wasn't for her, that would never have happened. Yeah. And it's like, you you know, why don't we know this? Yeah, exactly. I was thinking that when I, when I read about her helping them out of a slump. I just thought, that's insane. Like, she literally turned the company around. and Yeah. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, I, I bet there's more examples that, that are out there. Um but yeah, so the one of the there's a really good. I won't read the whole thing because I'll I'll just put the link up on the show notes. But there's quite a good um, article on downhearted blues, a bit of like a song analysis, yeah. and because we we're talking about the love theme, like love songs yeah. and whatnot. I thought I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs from the from the article because it's it's really interesting, yeah. like her take on love through this song. So. The song is a lament about the problems associated with love relationships. Bessie Smith sings about being crazy about a man who mistreated her and broke her heart. It's a situation that most listeners can relate to, but what sets the song apart is the attitude she assumes as she tells the story. In the opening lines, she confronts the simple terrible fact that it's hard to love someone when that someone don't love you and the pain that situation causes. But she also makes a commitment to avoiding this kind of agony in the future. The next man I get, she sings in a subsequent stanza, has got to promise to be mine or mine. So it's kind of like interesting because she presents herself as someone with agency. So someone yeah. who won't put up with it any longer. She she refuses to fall into that same trap again. Um, and I think that that's really powerful, especially for a black woman. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a really it's a really good song, that one. And the one that I started talking about at the beginning, the... Um, I need a little sugar in my bowl. I mean, that's it, it's brilliant. They're both worth listening to. Um, so yeah, so after the success of after the success of her um, single, she started touring across theatres and tent shows across America. Do you know what tent shows are or were? Tent shows? No, I want to say, is it like some kind of travelling cabaret type thing? Yeah, it's like the circus. Yeah, sort of. Not. Yeah, it's it's there's lots I could say about this because them in themselves were quite interesting, but I'll try and keep it short and sweet. So they were basically 
sh- outdoor shows in tents, obviously. Um, but it sort of grew out of opera because apparently opera houses were quite poorly ventilated at the time. And so the outdoor shows were preferable because they would it would call the breeze would like cool down the audiences. So that's how it started. But then other like traveling companies would use this as a way to kind of move their show around the country. And it was also useful for black performers because if there weren't any black theatres to perform in in the town that you were you know, um, touring through, then you mm. could just set up your own tent outside the city. God, that's, that's it's crazy, isn't it? If there wasn't, like, a venue that would allow <laughs> black people yeah. to perform, it's just, you, it just seems so unbelievable. Yeah. But, I mean, obviously that did happen. That was something. Oh, yeah, the segregation uh, just ran so deep. Yeah. I'll talk a little bit about that um, in a minute. But, yeah, so... Yeah, this was the peak of her career, really. She was, uh, in the 1920s, she was the highest paid entertainer of her day, including male performers. That's incredible. Yeah, highest paid. Um, but, but, I mean, how, how well paid was highest paid? I was going to say. Yeah, so her audiences, or at least the actual audiences that came to her shows, were mostly African-American because of uh, segregation. But obviously, I assume that people buying her records were mixed because she sold out. She sold so many. Um, mm. But yeah, her shows were packed out. People waited down the street. Um, she was her own businesswoman as well. Like, she ran the show. She was her own boss. Um, yeah, just this really amazing sort of powerful woman who took control of her own life, really. Um Obviously, she wasn't loved by everyone. She, some people saw her because of her, uh, the fact that she was black and her work really working class roots. She was seen like mm. as a bit rough, rough and ready. So a, a lot of people didn't really take to her or her music. Apparently, she would spit on stage sometimes. Just <laughs> she felt like it. <laughs> she sounded uh, hilarious. She sounds um, amazing. But yeah, wasn't afraid to speak her mind. She sang love songs in quite like a coded way. Uh, messages yeah. like, this man is trash, get rid of him. Um, <laughs> she, yeah, she seemed just really sexually liberated. Um, yeah. Which was... Yeah. She just didn't give a shit, really. She just, yeah. Say that again. She did her own thing. She didn't really give a shit. When I say she didn't give a shit, she didn't give a shit about what people thought, really, and just sort of got on with it. But she did have her demons, so... Yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah. Um... So, yeah, the, I've got a lot of this information, actually, from a podcast that I listened to um, on her. I'll, I'll put that in the show notes as well. But there was a really interesting discussion on there about blues and morality. So, like, even yeah. a lot of African-American people at the time looked down on blues music because, because of the fact that white people saw black people as inherently immoral and sinful. Some African-Americans mm. felt that blues music, like the sort of stuff that Bessie Smith was singing about, was reinforcing that idea um yeah. and that so they couldn't kind of gain the respect of white people because and and the, the blue, blues was holding them back because it wasn't really good for their image does that make sense yeah so a lot yeah, see, a lot see, of people didn't yeah. like her um and it, songs like i need a little sugar in my bowl really upset a lot of people because they thought if you know black people went around singing stuff like that it was never going to help them be seen as respectable um, and do you think it was also a lot to do with um, church and religion as well? Yeah. Though? And as in, obviously, the context of what they're singing about is not something that would have been condoned by the church. Exactly, yeah. By ministers. And, uh, and, and the places where the music was performed as well, drinking dens and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. 
So it was interesting. She was kind of like really loved by certain communities and hated by others, really. Um, so, yeah, we're in the 1920s now, and that's when blues starts to change. There's like a decline in mainstream interest and jazz takes over and the stock market crashes, which affects the music industry. People can't afford to buy records anymore. Columbia almost go bankrupt. People aren't interested in the blues because everything's too, too sad. No one wants to hear the blues. Everyone just wants to be cheered up, basically. Um, and so she leaves her husband... So it's a bit of a, a bit of a weird time for her, although they never actually officially divorce, which will be important later. Um, but yeah, so she's still recording. She at this point, uh, she's recording with people like Louis Armstrong. So things aren't going that bad. <laughs> yeah, uh, that, things have bottomed <laughs> out, but she's recording with some amazing. Artists. Yeah, and she's yeah. doing all right for herself. Um, yeah. Then in 1929, she stars in a film. I think it's the only film she ever did called St. Louis Blues, which you can watch on YouTube. I haven't seen it, but I've read quite a few bits about it this afternoon. From what I can see, it's definitely worth a watch. So I'll include that in the show notes as well. Um, And then in 1933, she recorded her last single with producer John Hammond. Ring a bell? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So that, yeah, 1933 was the last single. But then, yeah, it's... There's, it's a bit of a bit of a tragic ending, really. So, she actually died in a car crash. Do you know about that? I forgot about this. It's as you're saying things. It's it's coming back to me because, and I can't remember. Was it part of my degree? Yeah, I think I think you know what I think it was to do with um, my thesis. I I kind of did a bit of research on her because I did. Um, I wrote about God. What was it about? It was about how media's perception of women over time and how that's changed or not changed. Yeah, this was the master. So I discovered. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah. So, yeah. I think that's that's when I kind of did a lot of research on sort of the early sort of blues stuff and how women have been written out of history, um, and 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 how that's perpetuated through you know like all of these lists that you see like top 100 songs of all time yeah. and blah 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 and yeah and slowly but surely women get shifted out as male counterparts come in and, yeah and yeah and those lists yeah. tend to be quite male um no matter what genre or whatever the theme and uh yeah anyway oh, no no, <laughs> no learning, you can read it yeah because um, yeah. women always make yeah. like the revised histories don't they? But never. Yeah. Oh, of course. The specialist yeah. books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Women in rock rather than just being in there to begin with, yeah. you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you probably know all of this, but I'll just go for it anyway because I, fi- I found a lot of this really. Although it is sad, it's just really interesting because it just shows you, yeah, so much about the racial divide. So she was travelling in a car with her then partner. I think his name was Richard Morgan, although I haven't got written that down, so I might be wrong. Um so he tries to overtake this truck um, and then slams into the side of it. Um, and the truck driver drives off. Yeah. Um, and then their car is smashed to pieces. The, the first person on the scene was a doctor by coincidence who's driving past. They find her lying in the middle of the road with like her arm severed. So they move it. Oh my God. Yeah, it was awful. So they move it to the side of the road, call an ambulance. And then while they're waiting, another car approaches and hits the doctor's car. So it's... Fucking hell. No, so this other... Yeah, so this another car approaches, hits the doctor's car. Luckily, no one else is injured. 
So there's this doctor on the side of the road with her waiting for an ambulance. And then two ambulances arrive, right? So mm. there's, there was a mix-up. So because in those days you had black ambulances and you had white ambulances. So the doctor calls insane. a black ambulance because he can see that the person injured is black. But the truck driver who drives off, obviously drove off, then stopped and thought, I need to call an ambulance, but didn't realise that the person that had hit them was black, so calls a white ambulance. Okay. So the white ambulance turns up first, and Mm. because she's black, they don't help her. That's just how... So they have to wait for the black ambulance. Isn't that absolutely insane? But it's absolutely disgusting as well in in the thought, like, if you were that... Like, I mean, I know it's, it's easy for me to sit here and say say that, but, like, I don't know that I could ever... I, I just don't know how an ambulance showed up, saw someone so injured... And then said, oh, well, no, we only treat white people. Like, I just... It's, it, yeah. It, I just can't even imagine how that would even spring into your mind that you would use that as a justifiable reason for not it, helping someone. I mean, like, I don't you know. know if the person driving it was, like, tried to help her, but just knew that they couldn't take her to the hospital because there were black hospitals yeah. and white hospitals. But, yeah, so mm-hmm. they had to wait for the black ambulance and then eventually she was taken to... to um, to the hospital i mean she did die from the injuries so some say that it was because um she was refused admittance to a white hospital on arrival but that's unlikely because as i said the white ambulance wouldn't have taken her in the first place um some just say she died from her injuries but yeah so i just thought i was absolutely insane i couldn't believe that when i read it i mean just that's how deep it goes it's just yeah no i I hadn't remembered that that bit yeah the the story so but um so yeah the the version where she's refused admittance leads to a play led to a play called the death of bessie smith which i've never read or heard anything about but that's something i'm going to check out this week so but yeah like up to ten thousand people attended her funeral i think they estimate between like five and ten thousand i mean it was huge insignificant is it she's quite an important person yeah i mean it's but yeah a white ambulance couldn't take her i know it's not done it honestly i couldn't believe it i couldn't believe it um but yeah the husband jack you know the guy I mentioned before who she yeah. never officially divorced. He presumably yeah. inherited all her money because he pocketed all the cash that was meant for her headstone and they never got it back. But in 1970, I don't know if you know this, but the wonderful Janice Joplin bought her a headstone. No, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. that, see, that's a good fact. That's 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 a nice thing. Janice Joplin saved the day. Janice Joplin. So, yeah, that's all I've got on Bessie Smith, really. Um, but yeah, I just thought fascinating life. Um, yeah, worth checking but it's, out. It's a good, it's it's good bit of insight because you know hopefully people that were listening didn't know that about her, didn't know much about her, and should definitely definitely check out um, her stuff. It's all on the streaming services and things like this. Um, I think the first track I ever heard of Bessie Smith's was Empty Bed Blues, and there's a part one and part two to that but um that that was a good starting point for me but um but yeah so many so many great great songs and you can just hear 
how people after her were, were totally influenced by what she was doing. So uh, yeah, so many artists yeah. cite her as a as a influence. It's not. Yeah. Right. Well, should we have some new music? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. I th- I think. Um. Can I play? Because I've got two. So should I play my my first one? Go on. And I'll do this. Let me look at my notes. I'll do it from the order I, I discovered them, which is not difficult for two artists <laughs> to work out what order it was. Okay, so my first new music pick this week is from a band called The Anderson Tapes, and this is a song called Sirens. So here you go. <laughs> Anderson Tapes with Sirens and Anderson Tapes are Olga on guitar and vocals, Delphina on guitar and vocals, Martin on bass and vocals and Chris on drums. Chris letting the side down and not singing. Yeah. No, come on, Chris. Mm. Come on, <laughs> get a mic, get involved. Lazy drummers, Lazy, I don't know. <laughs> and they play kind of scuzzy, fuzzy music, as you will have just heard. Uh, they formed in 2017 and are an international band of members originally from Argentina, Poland, London and Middlesbrough. 
and their influences include Sonic Youth, Stooges, Throw Muses, Velvet Underground, Pixies, Jesus and Mary Chain and Wire. And I think with with that song that I just played, I really pick up that like obviously Kim Deal's in the Pixies, but I'm really hearing a big Kim Deal influence there. I'm not sure if it's just from no, it's the guitars and vocals and all of that stuff, like really sort of uh brought back those bits of like the amps. Have you heard of the amps? No, I haven't. Kim, it was one well, of Kim I have Dill's heard bands. of them, but I've not heard their music. Yeah, and also obviously the breeders, but very, very um, yeah, got a sense of the amps from that one. Really, really like that. Definitely check them out. Yes. Do all the things, streaming on Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, wherever you get your online music fix. But also remember if bands are on Bandcamp, please do buy their music because it does make a difference, especially on platforms like Bandcamp where bands actually do get yes. a large, well, they do get the money for it rather than like a, a, a tiny smidgen of cash from streaming. But do all the things and uh, they'll love you for it, I'm sure. <laughs> um, yeah, so that, I yeah, I was really, really pleased to have discovered them. Yes, I like them. yes. I think, I think wi- they would be excellent live. Yes. So, yeah. And uh, the fact they're in London means that we're likely to bump into them at some point when we're allowed to do things like Hopefully. going to gigs That'd be nice, again. So yeah, it'll definitely be along to to one of their shows. But I think it's time to talk about the Walrus of Love. The Walrus of Love. Ooh. Yeah. His official nickname. Is it? The one, the only Barry White. Is that his yeah. nickname? I've never heard that. That was one of his nicknames. Yeah. Of love. The thing is, because I thought that, and I think I mentioned this to you before, that this would be full of like so many great comedy moments. <laughs> um, but but it, you know, it's actually that the whole kind of you know him as you know Mister Sexy, the Love Machine, and stuff like that. Like the media took the piss out of him a bit, and I didn't think it was very kind. No, necessarily. Although he took it in good spirits. But um, but he was really about much more than that, which you'll you'll hear. And I didn't know any of this okay. to be honest. Um, so I I thought it was quite an eye opener. So yeah, so he was born Barry Eugene Carter on the twelfth of September in nineteen forty four. But he's better known, obviously, for his stage name Barry White. Um, and I'm not sure actually where he got the name. Like why he added white there, actually. That's probably something I should have looked up, but didn't. <laughs> Never mind. Someone can look that up and let me know. Um, anyway, he was an American singer, singer, songwriter, musician, record producer and composer. Um, a two-time Grammy Award winner known for his distinctive bass baritone voice and romantic image. His greatest success came in the 1970s as a solo singer with the Love Unlimited Orchestra, crafting many enduring soul, funk, disco songs, such as his two biggest hits, You're the First, The Last, My Everything, and Can't Get Enough of Your Love, Babe. Due to his large frame, impressive facial hair, and deep voice, he was given the nickname The Walrus of Love. The Walrus of Love? Who came up what with that? What a name. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> It's a bit. La- it's a bit lazy, and it's not very good. It's, it's a bit of a shit. Well, it's a little bit offensive as well, isn't it? It's like, yeah, you know. Um, <laughs> how would you feel? Oh, I don't know. I'd be like, Angela, like, like Grace, you're the walrus I'd be like, of love. I'd be like, oh, thank you. 
yeah, I could see what you're trying to do, but sort of missing the mark a bit. Um, anyway, going back a bit to his youth, like how he kind of got into music and all of that jazz, right? So Barry and his younger brother, Daryl, had teamed up in their teens and became a two-man gang terrorising the neighbourhood. So doing things like stealing cars, house break-ins, all sorts of things. And when he was 16, he was put in jail for stealing £30,000 worth of Cadillac tyres. Um, while in jail, he listened to Elvis Presley singing It's Now or Never on the radio, which he later credits as an experience that would change the course of his life. It wasn't long after this that he came out of jail that he was arrested again, however. And this time, kind of a bit more serious. It was for attempted murder. Um, was, however... Sorry, you were going to say something? No, I was like, he was... He, he was arrested for attempted murder. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he was cleared of the charges when his alleged victim came out of a coma and uh, provided an accurate description as real attacker and it was someone who looked nothing like Barry White. So, phew. Because <laughs> almost, almost, if, that, if he'd died, well, you know, we wouldn't have had Barry White. Yeah, that's true. The artist, that's to be not... honest. So, it's because he's black, yeah, it's crazy, isn't, it? isn't it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So Barry begins his journey in music, although he first fell in love with music when he was four years old and he'd listened to his mother play the piano. Um, And he absolutely adored her and just thought she was the most wonderful person ever. Um, He also sang in church, in the choir, and used to try and make... um, When he'd hear a song on the radio or something like that, he would try and make it his own version. He was always trying to sort of recreate Mm. songs that he heard, um, which which would later go on to really impact the way that he he wrote music. Um, So, yeah, once out of jail, he took his vision um, of wanting to make it in the music industry and really committed to it. He walked from South LA, which is where he he grew up, all the way to Hollywood, which I think is about 15 miles or something like that. Um, Had no money, just decided, I need to be in Hollywood if I'm going to get into the music industry. And just really committed to it. Um, It wasn't long before he started work in the industry, but not as a singer, but as a road manager. He worked in A&R. He was a writer, a producer, a musician. If there was a session musician that didn't show up like a drummer, he was there playing drums. He played piano. Anything he could do, um, he he was basically there. He never really considered himself a singer, Mm -hmm. but just more someone behind, behind the scenes. And he worked with a number of groups and started to make a name for himself, although it took him a decade before he'd really make his mark. And he, um, so and he started to make a sort of name for himself. Um, when was that? It was kind of in 1973, so about 13 years after he came out of jail and decided to pursue a music career. You know, it took him 13 years God. to really start making some money with anything, yeah. right? Um, and this was when he created the Love Unlimited Orchestra, which was a 40-piece orchestra to back um, a girl group that he formed. Um, so it was three uh, three girls in that group, one of which he would later marry, um, Glodine James. And they had, like, a huge single, which basically set him on his path as being, like, this fantastic writer, producer, creator. And that song was called Walking in the Rain of Love, and that was his first ever hit. Um, then... He released his own solo album in 1973. And again, like going back to the bit where he never actually considered himself to be a singer, the songs that he'd, 
he'd created, he never actually envisaged himself singing them. Mm-hmm. Um, but people were saying, it's your vo- your voice yeah. on those demos. It, listen to it, it has to be you that sings them. Yeah. And, he, and he kind of agreed. So he put out his first solo album, I've Got So Much To Give. And that fueled two Billboard R&B top ten singles, including um, number one, the I'm gonna sorry I'm gonna love you just a little bit more, baby. The album topped the Billboard's R and B chart and reached number sixteen on the Billboard two hundred albums charts. So things were going pretty well for him, needless to say. So music's flying. Mm-hmm. He's married. Um, <laughs> I think he's got he's got eight children. Boys, eight kids, I think. Actually, oh fuck. You know what? I shouldn't have said that because I had a quiz question on that oh, later. Delete that shit. from your brain, Grace. Right, well, well, yeah, we'll see. Because <laughs> did he have more than that? Um, anyway, um, in 1983, he suffered a tragedy, like a family tragedy, when his brother Daryl was shot. Oh, my God. And killed in a dispute with a neighbour and rival gang member over change from a $20 bill. Oh, God. In his 1999 autobiography, Love Unlimited, Insights on Life and Love, Barry White said, um, music spared him a similar fate, like he would have just ended up like his, his brother. But he also goes on to talk about, you know, he lost his best friend, his brother was his world. Um, and it was just like so traumatic. That any Losing a sibling at any point God, that, in yeah. any ways going to be traumatic, but it really did have an effect on him. So between 1973 and 1977... Barry White basically issued two albums every year. Like, he was a really prolific writer. Yeah. Um, and this was sort of under his own name and with Love Unlimited Orchestra. So he was not just writing for his own stuff, but for other people still as well. But by 1976, the formula had sort of started to become a bit stale. Yeah. And after Your Sweetness Is My Weakness reached number two in the American R&B charts in 1978, his success faded it wasn't until the 90s that he made it back into the charts. And in 1999, that's when he was kind of awarded a couple of a couple of Grammys. But the thing is to say, you know, obviously his solo career faded in 1978. In 1979, mm-hmm. he launched his own like record company. It was part of one of the majors. So he kind of still stuck around in the music industry. Yeah. He just wasn't doing his solo stuff. Um, so why was Barry White the warus of love? <laughs> What is it about his deep voice that has soundtracked many bedroom adventures? <laughs> That's it. <laughs> apparently, apparently so. At the time, people were saying that um, birth rates had increased in <laughs> his most successful times. Brilliant. I don't think I could listen. I d- look, right. I, I was listening to some of his records today, which I do think, you know, genius. But there's somewhere he's just doing like kind of, deep talking yeah 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 and it's just like oh come on yeah like that is not sexy no but is it well the belfast telegraph has all the answers (laughs) in my research i found this article scientific proof that a deep voice like barry white is the key to a woman's heart (laughs) even gay women the barry white it's, yeah, yeah, and there was something. There was something in the um, Huffington Post as well. There's this thing called the Barry White syndrome. Right? <laughs> um, <laughs> there is. I'm going to tell you all about it, Grace. Right? 
So a low masculine voice is important to the accuracy of a woman's memory of her potential partner and will stick in her mind when she makes the choice of a mate, according to academics at the University of Aberdeen. So there you have it. But I'll tell you what this experiment was and you can judge for yourself. Um, The researchers undertook two experiments. The first, 45 women were shown an image of an object while listening to its name spoken, either by an electronically manipulated voice that sounded high or low in pitch. Mm -hmm. Uh, The women were then shown two similar versions of the object and asked to identify the one they'd seen before. They were also asked which voice they preferred. In both cases, the researchers found that women had a strong preference for the low-pitched male voice and remembered objects more accurately than when they were introduced by the deep male voice. But what has that got to well, do with I was going to say, I don't understand do you know what, what I mean? that's got to do with sex. <laughs> I know, I know. Oh, God, you know, I think I'm getting high in this room. <laughs> Julia, my wife Julia, was um, doing some spray painting stuff earlier. And she's brought it in from the garden, and all I can smell is. Yeah, oh, well, we've I'm... got paint fumes in here as well because we've just decorated oh, the bedroom. So I'm running on the oh. same. <laughs> I'm running on the same. While gas. listening to Barry White. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Um, so yeah. So I don't. I don't know that that. It doesn't really... sound very scientific. No, but also I just think it's an know, experiment. Like, obviously, a worthy experiment. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so quiz question, and you might get this wrong still, how many children did Barry White have? At least eight. (laughs) At least nine, right? (laughs) Four from his first marriage, four from his second one, um, and one with Gunther Allen in 1962, and that child did not discover who her father was until 1988. Really? Yeah. Imagine finding out that it was Barry White. I know. And you'd tell like, you'd tell people and they'd be like, yeah, whatever. Well, there was an increase in, uh, you know, the rate of births <laughs> during a certain time period. So there could be many, many, like, many yeah, Barry White children out there. But when he died, actually, his partner tried to say that her child was Barry White's and that, you know, he wanted to leave all of his stuff to to them and they owed her you know he owed them money or something like that which was obviously just trying to squeeze a few out of him all of the inheritance from himself yeah and you know obviously a dna test proved it was like no no (laughs) no relation nothing to do with him um okay so one of the biggest hits that he had you're my first my last my everything was written by one of his friends actually barry white tended to really write his own songs and produce them and, and record them. So, you know, this this is kind of one of the, the, the kind of separate states of stuff where he actually worked with someone else on this. Um, I've got a boring it was, fact it wasn't, about that song. Well, this might be the boring fact. Oh, go on, you tell me. So wait for it, wait for it, right? So, and it wasn't like he asked someone to write it for him, but he basically had a friend called Peter Sterling Radcliffe who'd written this song, right? And it was a country song and it was called you're my first, my last, my in-between. That was my boring fact. Um, no. Was that the boring that fact? That was my boring fact, yeah. Oh, well, there's a little bit more to this than that. Um, did you know he couldn't get it recorded for like 21 years? He was trying to get this song out there with a singer for someone to take it seriously. 
and everyone just thought it was shit, basically. Um, I mean, my notes actually say people really didn't like the song, but I just wanted to say as it is. It is. Um, but one night Barry heard it and he was like, oh, hang on a second, you know, and he asked if he could play around with it. Well, apparently what he said was, Sterling, I want you to stay out of my face for two to three weeks. When you come back, you're going to be part of a smash. Um, and true to his word, he absolutely was right. He turned a country song that actually had like horse hoof noises and stable dust, um, you know, in this song into this amazing soulful disco classic. Yeah, it is a classic. And it's one isn't of his it? biggest selling singles. And every no every wedding you go to either. ever, yeah, it's on the list. wasn't wasn't on mine. No, when me and Julia got, got every married, wedding in Tamworth that you it. go to ever. <laughs> <laughs> Oh god. Yeah, I've definitely definitely heard it uh, in in the back of a cab. Yeah. Um when I'm drunk coming home from all oh, the dance. Got this one on. I love this. It's yeah. my favorite or song they, of all got, time. <laughs> they've got like I don't know what is it? The Love Zone or something Capital F that's some smooth FM or some shit whatever it is. Yeah. And it's got, you know, there's always a Barry White song playing always. Um anyway, life uh, Barry White's life wasn't easy and he came from humble beginnings growing up in south la no education street gangs and poverty but he managed to climb the ladder on his own steam and worked hard to achieve success in a notoriously cutthroat music industry he was not only an incredible solo artist but an extremely talented writer and producer and i never really knew that no Um, i didn't uh, you know i didn't know that at all um and it's just a bit about, you know, how he died. While he was undergoing dialysis and awaiting a kidney transplant in May 2003, he suffered a severe stroke which forced him to retire from public life. Sadly, um, literally just a couple of months later, on the 4th of July, he passed away and he was only 58 years old. God, that's, yeah, that's sad. But he he kind of had a lot of health problems. I mean, he was, like, quite, quite overweight and... Um, towards the end when he would do live shows because music was his life right mm-hmm. he um it got to a stage where he couldn't even walk oh, properly really? and one of his agents had stupidly booked him a gig and he was just sat on a stool and the audience were really pissed off because it was a gig in the round oh, so most God, of the yeah. people could only see his back and they just wanted him to you know be the performer that he was where he'd go into the crowd and stuff and he just couldn't do it and people were booing him oh really I thought it was just so sad really sad but um but yeah i really didn't know any any of that about no him. i just neither thought did he I. was, that was just really like good. you know this the walrus of love icon thing you know um, or was there a character in Ali there was something oh, I vaguely remember Ali McBeal and someone being obsessed with Barry White I don't know I no, don't know I've never seen it I might have got that wrong no I don't know might have got that wrong but anyway yeah that was that was Barry White yeah nice that was really interesting yeah I, but do you see what I mean like, I just there was so much about sort of like his background that I knew nothing about no and I just didn't know that he had been in the music industry for a really long time and had no desire to be a singer. And then, you know, fate would have it mm-hmm. that, you know, it would just propelled him in that direction. But, yeah, what an incredible guy. Yeah, really interesting life. I can't believe he was arrested for murder. Well, thankfully, that person came out of a coma. That's nuts, that is. I would have been talking about someone else today. Yeah. yeah I mean, but, he does uh, have an amazing voice, doesn't he? 
I'm not sure if it's, it makes it's me very distinct. Rip isn't my clothes it? I don't think. It, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't doesn't really do it for me. But it, yeah, maybe you have to be a straight woman. Actually, listeners, right? Okay. Well, hang on, I swing both is, ways. Maybe so this I... is a study. <laughs> maybe this is a study, Grace. You should do. It's like, is there a correlation to you know, if you're a lesbian or bisexual? Barry White doesn't do it for you, but if you're straight, the high, then, you know, yeah, the more gay you go, the higher the pitch in voice. <laughs> <laughs> Alvin and the Chipmunks yeah, does, does it, it for me. Alvin, Simon, Theodore. Don't know why I remember that. <laughs> oh, God. Um, should, we, should we have some music? Yes, please. Um, it's me now, isn't it? It is you, yeah. Okay, so this is a band called Anorak Patch, who I, I think that's what they're called. Anorak, A-N-O-R-A-K. There's no other way of saying that, that word, anorak is there? To me. No. <laughs> I've just never seen the word Anorak written before. So, yeah, Anorak Patch, um, they formed in 2019, um, and there are four priests from Colchester. I thought, bless them, 2019, like, what a shit like time to form just give up. things are just getting bother. going and then <laughs> <laughs> pandemic hits but yeah so they're doing all right though they released a single on the 22nd of january called irate that's the one i'm going to play for you this evening um there's a cool. video on youtube um, which is definitely worth checking out they're getting some good radio play bbc six music steve lamack uh, john kennedy's giving them a spin i think as well so yeah irate by anna rackpat
So that was irate and a rat patch. I love that track, how it just grabs you straight away. That's brilliant. I mean, I just, honestly, I've just gone online and looked at them. They look so young. They do. They do, And they're creating music like that already. I know. Which, I'm not sure whether that sounds really patronising or not, what I just said. No, I, I know just, what you mean, no. I don't know, I expected them to be, like, a lot older. Yeah. Um, it's really like mature yeah, sound, love, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Love the drumming in it as well. Like, really not an obvious sort of route to go down with with the way that that's structured that song i really really like that me too um but they're flying on um on spotify look at that over seven thousand yeah. monthly listeners they've got a song called six week party that's had over a hundred thousand streams like they're doing really really well for a band that's so new i think that's quite exciting uh, me too I, really. I, I thought exactly the same and i thought considering like the year we had last year and they're still yeah. doing so well. There's, they're obviously, yeah. you know, they've got what it takes. I like, I like her suit. So I'm just looking at her fo- at the photos now. <laughs> you carry on. Oh, I'll, like just, I'll just, I'll just wait. Really nice. <laughs> Fashion corner. Um, as I sit here in like a poker stars hoodie, <laughs> my trousers undone and just like slobbing because that's what you can do. Oh yeah, big on time. A Zoom call, and especially in a podcast when no one can see you. Yeah, not from the waist down. Anyway, you can't, uh, so exactly. who knows what's going on down here. <laughs> oh, Grace, we've been on tour. You've, you've probably seen me drunk walking around in my pants. <laughs> so, you know, it's... Yeah. No one else needs to know about that. Anyway, um, <laughs> so I guess it's almost the end of the show, yes. isn't it? Oh. Really? So what... What exciting <laughs> plans have you got for the rest of, like, I don't know, well, it's Friday tomorrow, isn't it? So for the weekend. What? Oh, God. Uh... In lockdown. <laughs> Honestly, nothing. Watch a few films, eat. Yeah. I can't think of anything. Sorry, that Angela, I've got thing. nothing for you there. Mm. Watch White House Farm on Netflix. White House that Farm. Oh, yeah. Um, I that's, watched that's the... a film last night that you'd like, The yeah. Summerland. Summerland, I think it's called. Summerland. Yeah. It's a 2020 film, so, you know, it yeah. slipped under everyone's radar a little bit. Okay. Watch it. I'll, I'll have to check it out. What's it about? Um, I don't, want to, tell, I don't want to tell you too much. Wartime, wartime lesbians. That's, oh, that's, that's all you need to know, nice. really. Yeah. <laughs> Sold. <laughs> done, done. Yeah, I watched And that. you need to watch um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I've already told you about this one. 
I know, I've not, I've not 18th seen that. 18th century French lesbians. <laughs> so. Well, so I just, I just watch things about true crimes. I think my <laughs> recommendations recently has been like, Pembrokeshire Murders, <laughs> Den- Dennis <laughs> Nilsson, <laughs> and, and now White, ha- White House Farm, which is actually interesting because I vaguely remember like being a small child and hearing about this case, and it's uh, very disturbing. White, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll watch that this weekend. Yeah. It's it's basically, um, it starts off this this guy is calling the police, and this isn't this isn't a spoiler, people. By the way, hmm. um, calling the police, saying you know you've got to help me. I've just had this frantic call from my dad saying that my sister's gone crazy with a gun, and that's how it starts. And it's basically everyone's dead in the house. Who did it? Type thing. So um, yeah, very interesting, disturbing, dark really good probably a few more episodes than there needed to be but you know yeah um, i don't still like very that. well done i like to be left wanting yeah. more yeah this this one i think was a bit so i think it could have been done in four episodes yeah no maybe i think how many was so i think there was like eight episodes to it but still good totally watchable so do do give it a go i finished it's a sin that just made me weep. Yeah, that knocked me Absolutely knocked me physics, made me that weep. did. Yeah, it was so, so well done. It was just so sad. It's like, you know when a piece of film or television or, or literature stays with you for a yeah. while? It really, like, yeah. affected me. Well, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, um, just sort of reinforces the whole thing. Of, you know, because you hear, you hear some gay people talking about... Do we need to do Pride and, and have marches still, surely? And I, th- I think it comes from a lot of people who are in London and probably quite quite blessed with not being... Mm. Um, perhaps not ever having to face any kind of the judgments or hate crimes that other people have felt. But, like, you look at that and you think, fucking hell, like, while I was at school, that stuff was, oh was going on. That, that is not that long ago. Um, and... Yeah, I don't know. And it's it, the was, way, it was horrifying, horrifying. And it's the way everyone talks about the last health crisis to hit, like, the UK was the Spanish flu, and it's like, not really. <laughs> it was obviously no, it was AIDS, and it was really terrible, And but the fact that it affected the gay community means that it's not really considered a crisis. Yeah. But, yeah, no, it, was, um, it was brilliant. Yeah. And the soundtrack was awesome as well. Loved it. Really, really good. Really, really well done. Fantastic characters. I'm trying not to say too much in case people haven't um, mm. watched it. Yeah, but do watch it, but have someone available for a hug. Yeah, don't watch it on a hangover or anything tissues. like that. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah, it's it's heavy going, but there's some really kind of fun yeah. fun moments in there. But, but yeah, I saw someone writing on Twitter going, it was the most uplifting thing I've seen in such a time. <laughs> I'd call it uplifting. I don't think they watched really? it to the end, did they? Yeah, I was say, have you only watched like, the first episode? Because I wouldn't say uplifting, really. But, you know, anyway. Um, we've been Rock Pop Rambles, and thank you for listening. We do have an email address that you can send us new music to. And also, if you've got a recommendation of a story you think we should cover, please send it to rockpoprambles at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Bug Eye Band. And on Instagram and Facebook as Bug Eye Music. Yes, everything's different because we just like to keep you on your toes. Um, 
what else is there to say, Grace? I don't know. Uh, I think that's, that's it, it for really. housekeeping, really. Yeah. yeah. Oh, we've got some fantastic guests coming up Ooh, soon. Yes, yes, um, yes, yes. I think, if my schedule is correct, that we have... Um, Holly from Berries coming on the show. Nice. Um, I think she's going to be talking or telling us all about Jimi Hendrix. Oh, great. Oh, I look forward to that one. I've committed her to, I've committed her to it now. So, um, yeah, apparently she's like massively obsessed, knows a lot about Jimi Hendrix. So I'm going to do some research and then do a Jimi Hendrix piece <laughs> and see if, see if I can catch her out. But um, And then we've also got Lisa from Backdale Sound Test coming on and a whole bunch of other people comedians musicians record producers people from record labels all sorts of stuff so make sure you do tune in this is a weekly show and i think this is episode 46 now so it's getting old isn't it yeah it is so it's it's time we did bring some guests back on yeah it's it's nice yeah look forward to that it sounds great yeah should should be good but okay so we're gonna end off on some more new music and this is from dio naz and ella and this is their song, Internalised, and obviously it's going to play out the show, so I'm just going to tell you a little bit about them now. This song came out on the um, 10th of February. Now, um, Naz and Ella are an alternative folk duo. Um, the single, as I said, was released on the 10th of February, so pretty new. Um, it's a track about fear of coming out to yourself. Naz and Ella draw on their personal experiences as queer women, sharing their story navigating internalised homophobia within a relationship highlighting the guilt and shame it can invoke, as well as their inner turmoil with regards to gender expression. By sharing their story, the North London-based duo hope to bring solace to other queer people going through a similar experience. Um, I think this is a really cool track. Um, It starts off with these really kind of lush-sounding, dreamy guitar intro bit before the vocals kick in, and I think the lyrics are just really smart. There's some beautiful harmonies going on. Mm And this, I really, really like it. And I tuned into all of their other stuff that they've got out there and I really wasn't disappointed. So I don't think this will be the last that you hear of them on our show and hopefully not on up, you know, hopefully you'll hear them elsewhere as well. And I'll put all links into um, the show notes for all of the bands that we've played tonight so you can follow them on all of their social channels and stream their music or buy it. Um, so, yeah, this is Naz and Ella with Internalised. Over and out. my friend. 
friend, what does it matter anyway? Drop your head, look the other way. Too many years of hiding in the shade, wrapped in shame. 